All right, well, good morning. Thank you, Meredith. So uh, first, I'll apologize for the heat. It's a little warm, right? I, uh, this morning, as I was getting dressed, you see I don't have a tie on because I was like, the tie will actually stick to my neck and probably suffocate me as I stood up here preaching. So uh, thank you for bearing with me, and I will make sure my sermon gets right to the point. That's why I had to be a little funny at the beginning because it's going to be a, a serious message. So make sure you know I'm not just like this mean guy that gets up in the pulpit. What I will invite you to do is on the back of your bulletins, you have this blank space. And during today's sermon, please... Take notes, because at the end, we do have time for questions. I will open up to you all to uh, put me on the spot and try to, uh, you know, stum- make me stumble or, you know, whatever people do to preachers when they're in the pulpit, when they ask questions. So with that, two Sundays ago, we started this whole truth series, the whole truth. We began with the beginning. You know, it makes sense to begin with the beginning, right? I'm hoping that's what we all intend to do is begin with the beginning. The question we must ask ourselves, as we did during that sermon, was... What did God create in the beginning? Yes, we read about the heavens and the earth. And the point I sought to make to you all two weeks ago was that this was not and is not dealing with the creation of the physical cosmos, at least not the material cosmos. Instead, I sought to prove from context and scripture that the cosmos, or more specifically the heavens and the earth being dealt with in Genesis 1 and 2, were understood by the original audience as the covenant creation of the people of Israel, God's chosen possession. I also sought to show that the creation of Romans chapter 8 that was groaning was not rocks and mountains that are waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, but it was Israel who was waiting on the new covenant reality of the revelation of the sons of God. And it was groaning, remember, historical context. And this was covenant creation of God dealing with Israel. Along with explaining this seemingly alternative approach to Genesis, I sought to show how the fallacy of allowing the first ten chapters of Genesis, of the Bible for that matter, to be creating the physical world, and then the other 1,169 chapters of the Bible are dealing with Israel. You see, there's a, we have a problem here. It's inconsistent and it lacks contextual biblical study. And it's inconsistent because... Covenant eschatology, or what is known as full preterism, proves the point that the end the Bible is speaking about is a covenantal end, the end of the Mosaic Age. Therefore, the beginning must be about the beginning of that covenant. If the end is about the end of a covenant, the beginning must be about the beginning of a covenant. What what we do in the beginning is what we will do in the end. So if you want the beginning to be about a physical creation, you will have the end of a physical creation. If you want the beginning to be about a beginning of a covenant, you will have an end of a covenant. Another reason for the inconsistency of reading Genesis as a scientific apologetic for the creation of the universe is that it doesn't even line up scientifically, and we have all these different views out there that are trying to make it fit. Everybody's trying to make it fit as science progresses and science understands new things. Are these six days literal? Are these six days a thousand years each? Are... You know, is there a gap somewhere? Are we missing something? Is there a missing point to the beginning? And we get all these confusions. And most of all, the Bible was not written to prove science to the atheist. That's not what Genesis was intended to do. It was intended to tell Israel about their creation. And also when you study ancient Near Eastern texts, to put Genesis as this writing that's scientifically explaining the creation, none of the other ancient Near Eastern texts are doing that. 
they're dealing with the creation of their people. So when we put it in context, say Genesis is an ancient Near Eastern text, we allow ancient Near Eastern text to be an ancient Near Eastern text. It seems pretty simple, obviously something uh, very misconstrued and misunderstood. It's vital that we read the biblical literature as it was intended to be read. I think we're all in agreement there. The fact is that Genesis was not written to prove the creation of the planet to atheists, which is how so many people read it. Instead, Genesis being an ancient Near Eastern text, or maybe more comfortably said, compiled by Moses. It wasn't written by Moses. A lot of people get, you know, they get funny about that when you say written by Moses. They say, well, doesn't Moses die eventually in Genesis? No. Actually, that's an Exodus. But they say, you know, how did Moses know about Adam and Eve? You know, we have all these different issues that come up, and it just gets rather confusing. Actually, the other night when I spent at the uh, Schilling's Bible study at their home, we had the opportunity to deal with this and talk about this. And as we unpack it, you know, and we logically want to make sense out of what the text is saying, you start to see some issues. Where did Abel find his wife? Who was Abel fearing outside the Garden of Eden? You know, you only have about five people on the planet at that time. So it gets kind of confusing. Who's going to kill him? And, you know, these are things that obviously there's all kinds of responses. And uh, as I said at the Shillings Bible study, all my plea is just for consistency. I just want some biblical clarity. Let me know what this is saying. Let's see how we can unpack it and understand it. I'm not saying that Genesis cannot be dealing with physical creation. What I'm saying is when you read the text in its basic understanding, it has to have something to do with the covenant because the end had to do with covenant. As Milton Terry said, in the opening chapters of Genesis, we are not to look for a historical narrative, not contributions to natural science, but to recognize a symbolic apocalypse of God's relation to the world and to man. I would dare add, more specifically, God's relation to his covenant people, Israel. Moses did not send this letter of Genesis or this writing of Genesis out to the entire planet. It was for Israel to explain their origins, and that's how they would have read this writing. So the goal of this series, The Whole Truth, is for you to understand the whole truth with emphasis on the comprehensive story of God. The following quote by 17th century Baptist pastor Hezekiah Harvey illustrates the goal of this sermon series. The modern pulpit, from its neglect of the Bible, is singularly narrow, exhibiting little of the vast wealth and variety of divine truth. It leaves by far the larger part of the Bible a concealed book. Its types, its poetry, its prophecies, its parables, its presentations... As in the epistle to Romans, the truths of the gospel in their connection as one grand comprehensive system of salvation. How little all of this wealth of scripture is presented in the pulpit. Therefore, I stand before you today preaching a message of the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. Also, uh, it's funny that I alluded to a Baptist pastor this morning. I felt like a Pentecostal pastor getting up here. I said, you know, if you see me wiping, you know, I wish I had like a little handkerchief or something. I could wipe and yell and, you know, because it's, it's so hot, but... So today we will be discussing the broken covenant of what we read in Scripture. You know, you will see the parallel and develop the understanding of what happened with the first covenant people, Adam and Eve, in the garden, and you will see the comparison to the people of Israel and how they broke covenant with God and how they removed from the Garden of Eden. So God creates Adam in Genesis chapter 2. God places Adam in the Garden of Eden. Notice he was created outside of the Garden of Eden. And he was placed by God, God's grace, into the Garden of Eden where we would have understood that this is the presence of God. This is where God dwelt. This is where the tree of life was. 
You remember when he gets barred, he's not able to stay because he will live forever. Okay. So God then creates woman as a helper for man, so Adam would not be alone. And Adam was given a law to follow in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. And we read, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. I imagine most of you here have heard that story at this point. I think most people have heard that story. You know, Adam ate the apple, we get it. Actually, most people think Adam just went and ate the apple. Eve gave him the apple. You know, we could get into the blame game. I'm not going to do that this morning. So Adam eats the apple, and uh, Eve gets deceived by this serpent. She offers it, you know, to Adam. And I would say that she was deceived by the pride of her carnal mind. It says that, I'm not sure what that is. Hmm. Ask Meredith to sit up here. Quiets down when she gets up here. All right, it works. All right, so I, I would say that Eve allowed her carnal mind to deceive her because she, it looked good, so she ate it. It looked like it would make her, you know, if you remember what Satan said to her, he said, it will make you like God. And, you know, she. Who doesn't want to be like God? You know, okay, I'll, I'll try it. It looks good. And uh, then she gives it to Adam. Like I said, I promise no blame game. Don't worry. So we know this as the fall. That's what most people refer to this as, the fall. Adam and Eve then seek to cover themselves and hide. God later offers them a covering. And sadly, the death that they suffer is the removal from the Garden of Eden, which was the presence of God. What I want to demonstrate to you this morning is the story that Adam and Eve's fall the death that they suffered was obviously not physical death. They did not physically die that day. And this story is how Israel would have viewed the beginning of their covenant with God. This was their story. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And we're going to read through to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was no... It was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Sorry, I'll get into a quick pause. I always heard a joke that they always used to say. They said that uh, Adam, when God created Eve, the reason why he called her a woman was he was, whoa, man. You know, that's, I was, that works, that works. Um, Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than the beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, God has said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat. 
from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight, delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loins coverings, loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you cursed are you more than all cattle and from every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then he said to Adam, and he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because you were from it, you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim, and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The popular teaching on this subject is that men and women die, all men and women die, because of the death of Adam. A careful reading of God's command to Adam shows that the punishment for Adam's disobedience could not have been biological death. According to the NASB Bible, which we have in our pews, in that day you shall surely die. In the NIV translation it says, for when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam biologically lived about another 600 years after this event, biologically. But covenantially, he died that day. The moment he ate of the tree, his relationship with God was changed forever. Just as the moment you sin, your relationship with God is affected at that moment. He now needed a covering. As man's in the habit of doing, he fashioned his own covering. You know, this will work. This will be the right way to do it. Quite simply, a point that is illustrated in the book Beyond Creation Science by Tim Martin and Jeff Bourne is that the biological view of the curse has serious implications. If we are to take the fact that this was a biological death that Adam was going to suffer. If biological death is the nature of God's curse on Adam, then every man pays the penalty for his, his sin when he dies. Je did Jesus pay the penalty or not? If the answer is yes, then biological death cannot be a part of the curse because Christians, when we accept Christ's sacrifice for our sins, we still die biologically. I had the opportunity to share this with a friend last night. And the common question is, well, then why do people die biologically? Well, it makes sense that biological death is built into the creative order of our world. It actually serves a divine purpose to illustrate 
spiritual death. Covenantal death is what occurred in the garden, and that was the punishment for sin, and still is. Spiritual death, covenantal death, cut off from God. Yes, the wages of sin is death. In Hosea, God is using the storyline of Hosea and his wife, Gomer, to illustrate their breaking of covenant. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, it says, Like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. They have dealt treacherously against me. Clearly, God is comparing the breaking of covenant with Israel, them going against the law, them following after other gods, to that which Adam did in the Garden of Eden. Consider the fact that when Adam sinned, God came to him and gave him a chance to confess. And he said, what have you done? So also Moses came to Aaron when Israel when had the, made the molten calf. And he says, Aaron's response, What did this people do that you brought such great sin upon them? Adam dodged the blame by immediately pointing his finger at his wife and saying, It was the woman that you gave me. She then turned and blamed the serpent. And, you know, so the blame game goes. Like, likewise, Aaron blames the bride of Israel, bride Israel, and he says, you know the people, they are set on evil. You see, everybody's kind of shifting the blame to somebody else. Then he blames the object of worship itself by saying, they, they gave me gold, and I threw it into the fire, and it came out as this calf. I mean, come on. So, you know, Eve, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. So likewise, you know, when Israel sins, they blame Aaron, and Aaron, or Aaron blames Israel, and then Israel... All of them together, and Aaron blames the, the gold itself. You know, it's, clearly, this is Israel's story we're dealing with in Genesis. Obviously, many of us could probably find a similar struggle in our own lives, but that's not what is being deal, dealt with in the text. So let's go back to the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they became ashamed and covered themselves with leaves. They made loins coverings for themselves. There's not a lot of detail why God decided that that covering was not good enough. Some I've always questioned. Why, why, why'd they have to be covered with something else? Allow me to explain my thoughts on this. We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, After God delivered the curses upon Adam and Eve and the serpent, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Many people get caught up in the details of how the first garment did not have bloodshed, and, you know, the covering of God did. He killed an animal, and he covered them in animal skins, which is an obvious reference to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, where it says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. I don't want to harp on that this morning. Rather, what I'm questioning is why did God decide that what they equipped themselves with was not good enough? I want to show you why I believe this is an allegory, alluding to the purpose and intent of the law. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, we read, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come who, to whom the promise had been made. And later in verse 24, we read more specifically, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. The law of Moses was a temporary covering. It's man's way, self-righteousness. If I could follow these laws, I can please God. That was man's way of covering himself. That's what the law of Moses was. It was an opportunity for man to see 
you know what? You do it yourself, and let's see how well that works for you. And anybody that reads later in the Bible, you know that Israel ends up not going by the law. They cannot do it. Man cannot atone for himself. His righteousness is as a filthy rag. The need for a Messiah was always there from the beginning. The Messiah would bring about the new heavens and new earth. The new covenant by his blood. There's that bloodshed aspect. Provided by God's grace. Provided by God. So Adam and Eve sin. They cover themselves. Their own self-righteousness. Their eyes are open. They see their sin. They say, oh, we have, to, we have to fix this somehow. And they fashion their own way. Just as we know Israel eventually did in their history. But then God provides, right? Grace. And that's exactly what God did in the garden with Adam and Eve. He provided them a covering. It's not your covering that's going to matter. It's the covering that God provides that's going to matter. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things shall be added. Everybody always forgets that his righteousness part of the scripture. So, next week I want to discuss a little bit more about how Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And we can see clearly how the law pointed to Christ. The covering that man provided for himself when he broke covenant was not good enough. It would be by the grace of God, a God-provided covering would lead men back into fellowship with God. Yes, life is found in and through Jesus Christ. Once we understand the death of Adam, how that was a breaking of covenant, a breaking of a relationship with God, and how that was a spiritual covenantal death that he suffered that day, you know, that's a time statement, you will die this day. You will die when you eat of the tree. Not 600 years later, not progressively. That day, you're dead. When you sin, that's it. That's what it says. You know, when I sin, it has its outcomes, you know, in the future. But at that moment, you feel your sin. You know you've done something to violate God, if your conscience is with Christ. Once we understand the death of Adam like that, we can then begin to understand what was the hope of Israel? What did they need? What is the rest of the Bible talking about? So if Adam sinned in the beginning and he was cut off from fellowship with God, he died that day, what is needed to restore? What is needed to bring man to life? Is it a physical body resurrection that's going to bring them into the presence of God? Or is it a spiritual covering that's needed by God? That's what that story is showing us so beautifully. It's showing that man covers himself. It's not good enough. God will provide by bloodshed. The arrival of the new order, the new heavens and new earth, which we believe has already occurred, is hard for most many modern Christians because their fallacy is in understanding the biblical beginnings. They think it was a physical death that man suffered. If it's physical in the beginning, it'll be physical in the end. Right? Man dies physically because of Adam and Eve. Therefore, what has to happen? Physical resurrection. Right? But if man dies spiritually, covenantially, at that moment, what's needed in the end? A spiritual covenantal covering for man to restore you back into life. That's why we believe life is in Jesus. I have friends that say, I'm alive. No. Are you in Jesus? Because you don't have life. That's why we have these fancy little cards that we have at our church that say, get a life. Visit Blue Point Bible Church because we believe that life is found in and through Jesus. You know, the spiritual life came by Jesus. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through, 15, 1 through 5, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and they shall be his people. And God himself 
will be among them, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will be no more any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. And when he said that, write these words, for these words are faithful and true. What were the first things that were passing away in the first century? Heaven and earth would pass away, right? Two weeks ago I established, I hope I established, that heaven and earth is a covenantal term for God's relationship with his people. As Jesus said, heaven and earth would pass away, but his words would not. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, we read, But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. If you were to take the time to contextually read your Bible, which many of us here are doing through B90X and taking time in our own time to read through the Bible comprehensively as one big Bible, one big story, one comprehensive story, not a bunch of different crazy stuff going on, and then we end up at all kinds of different conclusions, one story. If you read through the New Testament alone, you will read what, what are called time statements, which show that during the first century, during the time of Jesus Christ and the 40 years to follow, the Old Covenant, the Judaic economy, circumcision, Levitical law, do's, don'ts, unclean, clean, were passing away. They were coming to an end. They were being fulfilled. Remember Jesus said that when every jot and tittle is fulfilled, you know, is fulfilled of the law and the prophets is fulfilled, then all this will be fulfilled. All this will be done. That's what Jesus came to do. More specifically, he said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave. Those who are in the country must not enter the city because these are the days of vengeance so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. So when would you see that? When the city of Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. Okay. Those are Jesus' words to a first century audience standing in front of him about the times of calamity that were about to come upon Jerusalem. Historically, we know this happened in AD 70 when Titus led his troops to surround the entire city of Jerusalem. All that is written will be fulfilled when you see the city of Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Sadly, there's many today that are looking for the city to be surrounded by armies because they're waiting for all to be fulfilled. A little uh, contextually confusing since I know Jesus was actually talking to real people. So the goal what I'm, I'm trying to demonstrate to you this morning, and I'm hoping I'm making my point, is that when we focus on the covenantal beginnings, there's a covenant death, there's the creation. Well, first off, there's a creation of a covenant. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Covenant. Created a relationship with man. Man dies. If it's a covenant creation, it's a covenantal death that man dies at that moment. When we do that, it properly allows us to identify and understand the covenantal end that's being dealt with in Scripture. The story of God's covenant people, the heavens and earth, begins with Adam and Eve. The story of the fall details the breaking of covenant in regards to the law, being given by God, the need for a covering from God, one that would come by bloodshed, the need for bloodshed. And that's why we see Israel throughout the entire Bible has to do these sacrifices. And then we know that Christ was killed as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. In the end, the covering, the righteousness of Christ, symbolized as white raiment that can be bought alone only from the Lord. That's it. It's what allows man to enter back into the garden to eat of the tree of life. In the last chapter of Scripture, we read, Blessed are those who wash their robes so they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates of the city. So in the beginning of the Bible, we have man in the garden. He disobeys God. He violates a law, tries to provide his own covering, ends up getting a God-provided covering, but he still gets 
thrown out of the garden, right? No access. And then Israel, they're given the opportunity by way of the law to come into the presence of God. There's this, you know, if you read through the Old Testament, there's a lot of laws in there, 613, I believe, to be exact. You, you read these laws, and you see that if the priest, only the priest, this righteous priest, you know, which our righteousness is never going to work, but this priest was declared righteous, and he can enter into the Holy of Holies and into the presence of God. Only he. That's it. That was a system that was coming to an end. And the goal was through Jesus, all of us, would have the opportunity to enter back in by his righteousness. Not by our righteousness, not by the righteousness of the law, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So man's kicked out of the garden, man's restored to the garden. Beautiful story. That's what breaking of the covenant is. So with that, I want to open up. You could try to challenge me on that. I mean, hey, I'm open to challenges. Please let me know if you have some questions and we can go through that. Are you picking up what I'm putting down, so to speak? Steve. I think as we read a lot of the ancient Near Eastern texts, you see they all kind of came up with their own deities, their own story, own creation story. And uh, I think evolution, evolution really never was like a thing of the ancient past. That's something like we've just kind of created because we think we're just so brilliant. And, uh, you know, that wouldn't have been a thing. They would have believed ancient, in all the ancient Near Eastern texts, you see God creates, whether it's the God of Israel or the God of, you know, the Nile or whatever you want to call them. So they... The ancients would not have understood, they would have understood that their deity, and just like, actually, I'll, I'll relate it to Genesis. All the ancient Near Eastern texts, Genesis included, they would have understood that our God created us, created us as a people, created our covenant with him, and of course he created all of this. He's God. You know, whether it was a right God or wrong God, but they would, there would not have been the need to explain God created the trees, God created the water. Like, it's, no, we, he's our God, he's our deity. He runs our society. One of the things that John Walton in his book, Lost World of Genesis 1, he talks about that. And he says, the ancients were never, they were more concerned with function than form. You know, they wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have dwelt on the form, the creation of things. They would have dealt on the function of those things. That's why we do see this, you know, when you read Genesis 1, it's like everything's being explained. You know, God created the firmament. God created this to separate this and to do this. So there was a function to everything rather than, you know, you don't read Genesis and it's not like God created the tree. Now, you know, it's not pointing those things out. It's telling you the function of all these things and how they all fall into how this deity relates to his people. And I believe that answers the question, right? All right, sufficient? All right. Please, Brian. Yet it's shown 
I would, I would agree. I think the over, the, the bigger view, if I'm going to take the bigger view, which I would say is the creation view, the physical, like, not physical creation, but that it is a creation story, I believe that can work. My issue, the reason why I do dwell on this and obviously going into this, is the intention of Genesis. What was Genesis originally intended to do? I don't know so much that Moses... The fall of man, yeah. But I believe Moses, if we, you know, studying the Torah... You know, uh, Moses is demonstrating this to Israel. So first and foremost, this would have been understood as Israel's creation, whether they believed it was a literal creation or, you know, whatever. It would have been first and foremost understood as our deity created us. This is our history. And, you know, obviously now we're 21st century information is everywhere. I think now we can begin to look at it as this is a, a type of everything. It's a, it literally a creation story that creates everything. And one thing, too, is that the other thing is that in 2.20, it says the man, Adam, the man, gave names to all the cattle and to the birds, sky, leaves, blah, blah, blah. And Adam was not found to have fruit of all types of things. So it's another thing that there were people before who had names of animals or something like this. And this is saying Adam gave names. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, that again, when this is being compiled and these stories are being told, I think that we're looking at it from our, our view. You know, we're reading this and we're saying, yeah, of course, then there had to be nothing because things are being named. But Israel didn't understand that. No, others, they, they're worried about their creation. So when it's talking about naming the animals, yeah, naming the animals around us, naming our people, naming our things, this is about us. They would not have been looking at it as this, this is the story of the world. It would have been understood, this is the story of us. This is the story. You know, again, I think that when we understand ancient Near Eastern texts, which is something I'm still kind of, you know, still delving into myself. You know, I'm going through this study with you. You know, that's why I'm open to questions. I uh, need to challenge myself. But um, ancient Near Eastern texts, you cannot find where they all do that. They all say, you know, the God of the Nile was created, you know, asked man to name the world. And, you know, we would have to, we would have to find out how the ancient Near Eastern texts were understood by their original audience. And I... I don't believe that it was. It would push us in a direction that they were the first physical people on the planet. I see a bunch of questions. Um, I just wanted to add something. Basically, the Garden of Eden would have been like parallel to the Promised Land. Amen. Yep. And they were kicked out and. Well, the question I would ask is, when was the story of Adam and Eve compiled? It was actually compiled after they were in the promised land. So this story is actually being told in retrospect. You know, Adam and this wasn't like it could have been told around the campfire for generation after generation. But when Genesis is being compiled, the people of Israel already established people. Moses is telling Israel their history. 
He's, you know, because we read Genesis like, oh, this happened first, and then this happened. No, this is a story Moses is telling the people of Israel. So it's a, it was always in retrospect. And when he start, you know, when they're, think about it, if the first time you heard the story of Adam and Eve, and you, you know yourself as a nation, you're saying, wow, that's us. That's how we were created. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, here's Genesis 1. And three years later, here's Genesis 2. No, it was a compiled story as they were already in the promised land. And then they would have, that's why I believe the covering aspect, that they would have understood, oh, our covering is not good enough. God had to provide us a covering, and so on and so forth. You would say, yeah, you would say during the wilderness period. The wilderness, yeah. Agreed, yeah. <coughs> Correction. Not dur- in the promised land, but during that exodus, so to speak, yeah. toward the promised land. See how that would coincide with they're in the wilderness period. They're about to go in to conquer a land. They're about to go in to, you know, declare their new kingship, so to speak, over another land. So that would obviously fit. Yes, we're moving into a new land. We're in an exodus period. We're going to begin naming everything, you know, renaming, so to speak. And that's a good point. Rebecca. That's, I think, then, you know, one of the things you said, you know, how we understand it. We understand. That's, that's my issue because I'm not trying to understand how we understand. I want to understand how they understood it. So that's why I, I believe it is important to go back and look at ancient Near Eastern texts. How did these people of the ancient Near East understand anything? You know, how, how, what was the theme? And because, I mean, they were interacting cultures. They were going in and conquering. They were dealing with these people. So my goal is to find out the original audience's understanding of those terms. How did they understand sun and moon? How did they understand these things? Were, were they ever literal? Were they, you know, and then if I take it literal, then what does it do to other texts in the Bible? And, you know, and then that's where it gets, that's where we start to get our understanding of how these people, not necessarily us, how these people would have understood the text. But I do believe that what you're saying is valid. I believe that there can be a double meaning in many places. I do believe creation, I believe creation can be a, uh, this story could very well be how Israel would have understood the creation of the world. That works. And uh, so I, I would agree.
And I think it's a challenge. I think it's something that our goal should always be to understand ancient literature on ancient people by their way of understanding it, not our 21st century way. Because I read this stuff and I come up with all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, as a 21st century American. So, all right. With that, I will say uh, next week, you know, what I'm going to do is now that we understand the problem, the problem is they broke covenant, right? They broke covenant. They needed restoration. That was the need. They needed a covering provided by God. We know that the law was added to point people to Jesus Christ. The fall of Adam and Eve with it, and the details of breaking covenant were God's covenant people. And what this did, this created a division, a covenantal death for man. Next week, we're going to read about what the prophets saw as God's, the future of God's covenant people. What was the future of this heaven and earth? What was going to happen? What needed to happen? And I think that's the next part of the story. With that, I'll say, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we have this morning, Lord, to learn more about you, that we will seek to prove all things, that we will understand that we must find the intended audience's understanding of the text that we read, Lord, and that we will continue to do that, that we will take everything that we hear from the pulpit and we will study it and we will search out a matter. And we will not allow our paradigms to lead us. We will not allow what the man from the pulpit said to lead us, but we will search and study and prove all things, Lord. And we know that brings glory to you, that our desire to seek and know the truth, to preach the truth to others, and ultimately to come to a better understanding of you, Lord, is the biggest praise and glory that we can give to you, Lord. So I pray that all of us go out with that endeavor this week, Lord. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. We all say amen.